December 28th, right? I mean, Christmas is over. And so what's next? What's in store for all of us? Well, statistically, I can tell you, there's a phenomenon that mental health experts have been tracking for the last several decades, and they call it the post-Christmas blues or the post-Christmas letdown. They say that up to 75 to 80% of all people in the United States are going to have this letdown. Now, I went online and I was reading, there's dozens of articles about it. It's pretty amazing. But what I noticed is not one single article gave a reason for the letdown. Now, most of the articles just discussed it as a given and then gave recommendations or remedies for the post-Christmas blues. There was one in the Huffington Post that said, here's our list of remedies. Number one, take your vitamins. I'm like, really? Uh, Number two, go out and exercise. And I think that's a pretty good idea. Number three, hang out with friends. Don't Don't become a hermit. Get aromatherapy. Get light therapy, even if that means a tanning bed. Those are the remedies that the world is pushing for the post-Christmas blues. And I want to tell you something. Those will not work. And so what I want to talk about today is a remedy, and I believe the only remedy that will be of help. That is the gospel of Jesus Christ, the central truth of our faith. And if you've been around Rock Hills, you hear us talk a lot lot about the gospel. And that that is because it is the central truth of our faith. And the other thing we believe It says we teach through the Bible and teach you principles about generous giving or about marriage or about raising a family, that those things are impossible to do unless you understand the gospel. Because the gospel, understanding that Jesus died for you and paid your penalty, gives you such humility and such gratitude that you're willing and, and desire to apply God's principles. But not only that, It says, if you have put your faith in Jesus, then the Spirit of God comes to live inside you. And it is actually the energy source, actually the power source for us to live out all the other principles we teach during the course of the year. So that is why I try to incorporate the gospel, and I know Dave does too, in every single message. But today, I don't want it to be just incorporated. I want to talk about the gospel as the central Point of this message. Talk about different aspects of the gospel. Maybe try to communicate it in a slightly different way as a remedy for our post-Christmas blues. Let's start with a word of prayer. Father, I'm reminded that your word says that the gospel is the power of God for the salvation of all who believe. That there is a power in proclaiming the good news of Jesus. But Father, I'm also reminded that your word says that the persuasive words of any man are insufficient to cause changes, permanent changes in people's hearts. And so Father, please, would you be here this morning? Would you send your Holy Spirit to empower this message, to empower this proclamation of the good news of Jesus? Because I desire so much for my friends and the people I've loved at Rock Hills to grasp this concept, and this truth in perhaps new and different ways. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we've talked about this before, but the gospel is actually a translation of a Greek word called evangelon. So evangelon has been translated in English by the word gospel, and the literal translation is good news. 
Now, the interesting thing about good news is you can't really have good news unless there's some bad news behind it. So that's the first aspect of the gospel I want to talk about, is that there is bad news. C.S. Lewis was a, a brilliant Christian thinker who had been an atheist and became a Christian, and he talked about this in the, in the 1950s, in the mid-1900s. He said, you know, if there is a cure for disease, it doesn't really fall on you as good news unless you think you're sick. And he says, the gospel, the good news, seems to have lost its impact in the world because for the first time in human history, in the 1900s, people didn't think they were sick. People didn't think there was any bad news. You see, what happened is all through human history, for centuries and centuries, people who, who murdered and raped and cheated and stole and lied, they understood that the judgment of God was upon them. And that was bad news. But in the, in the 1900s, something happened. The therapeutic culture was ushered in. And, and what happened was there was no longer any responsibility for any actions. You see, everything could be explained by something in our past. So beginning in the 1900s and continuing to today, it doesn't matter if you murdered or raped or lied or cheated on your taxes or cheated on your spouse because that really wasn't your responsibility. That was a result of bad parenting or a childhood trauma or growing up in poverty or, or your parents divorcing when you were eight years old. And so the first thing I want to do today is talk about the bad news because people, especially in our culture, need to hear the bad news. And the bad news began right back in the beginning. God created man and women in his image in this idyllic paradise. They were created perfectly innocent. They were created just in this perfect relationship with God. And for reasons we don't quite understand, they rebelled and revolted against God. And, and, and that's, that's bad news. It caused this catastrophic break with the God of the universe. But the bad news continues to this very day. Because, folks, every one of you is drawing breath in. The breath that you're breathing is a gift of God. You're breathing it in through your mouth, that is a gift from God, into your lungs, that is, that is a gift from God, and you're taking the very breath that is the gift of God, and you are cursing him and slandering him and questioning his goodness. And every single person in here is doing that, and every single person has been given their body, has been given their abilities, has been given their material resources, their money, their homes, and their houses as a gift from God, and every single one of us uses those in a greedy, self-centered manner that brings dishonor to our Father and fails to bring honor to our, to our Father, and this is cosmic treason, and that is profoundly bad news. But what we really did I, thought, I think is captured by the parable of the prodigal son. You all remember the parable. He's living in this perfect situation with his dad, and the prodigal son gets tired of living with his dad and goes up to his dad and says, Dad, I don't want you anymore. I want your stuff. 
Give me my inheritance. I'm going to go off with my wealth and live in a way that's going to make me much happier. And that's really what we all have done. We have all said to God, God, I don't want you. I just want your stuff. I want your gifts. I want your material blessings. And I'm going to live in a way that makes me happier. And that's where God began to show his his love and his mercy. Because what he did was the cosmic equivalent of putting a candle in the window in case anyone ever turned back and wanted, wanted to change their mind and come back to God. And the way he did that was he put a longing deep in our heart and soul, a a vague recollection of of a better life, of a time when we lived with our loving Father in a paradise, a time when we were in perfect relationship, a time when we had access to breathtaking beauty and endless wisdom and infinite love. And he placed that in our heart as a guiding light if we ever wanted to turn back to him. And and Solomon, the wisest man that ever walked this planet, said it this way in the book of Ecclesiastes. He said, God has set eternity in the hearts of man. And, And as so often is the case, it wasn't until the 1900s that medical science caught up to a principle that's been in the Bible for thousands of years. And it really began in the German literature. The German literature, the German mythic literature, goes back many, many centuries. It's the oldest literature known to the human race. And early on in the German literature, an amazing concept develops. It's this concept that every human being has a deep, undefined longing in their heart. An undefined longing for something that nothing in this world seems to satisfy. This was so prevalent and so understood that the Germans even coined a word for it, and and I'll probably butcher it, but it was Sehnsucht. So this Sehnsucht is this undefined longing for something that this world doesn't satisfy. And and C.S. Lewis, the man I mentioned earlier, was a professor of medieval literature at Oxford, Brilliant, brilliant thinker, and he was an atheist. And as he read the German literature and this idea of Sehnsucht, he began to say, you know what, I'm an atheist, but I do have a longing in my heart. I I do have a longing for something that I don't find satisfaction in this world. And he reasoned like this. He said, if I find in myself a longing for something that nothing in this world satisfies... It must be that I was created for another world. And so C.S. Lewis became a theist. He started to believe in God and eventually became a Christian. And my question to you as you sit here today, don't you sense that there's something more? That there's got to be something beyond the daily grind. Besides getting up and fighting traffic and going to work, And as much as I love my wife, the the difficulty and the the stress of of a relationship day in, day out over many years, there's always times when things aren't working quite right. Don't you long for that time when everything is right, everything is perfect? Don't you sense that you're designed for something more? That is God's mercy and love to put that in your heart. And, And besides Besides C.S. Lewis, there was another young man that was struck by this Zehnsucht, and he was a young psychiatrist by the name of Carl Jung. And Jung was mentored by Sigmund Freud. 
And, and he grasped this concept that the Germans had come up with, and he began to think, I wonder if this can be verified, because it does seem to be true. And so most of Carl Jung's psychiatric practice was examining patients and trying to see if there really was something imprinted on the human heart. And he concluded scientifically, and it's been confirmed to this day, that there seems to be software. There seems to be a blueprint imprinted in every human being. And he called it the collective unconscious. unconscious. And his, here's how Carl Jung defined it. In addition to our personal consciousness and experience, there exists a second psychic system of a collective, universal, and impersonal nature, which is identical in all individuals. You get that? Every individual has it. It's identical. This collective unconscious does not develop individually, but it is inherited and is found in every human being in every culture. The collective unconscious is what imprints us with a story. And Jung studied it in context of fairy tales. He says there's a reason why Cinderella and Snow White resonate around the world. Those stories are found in every culture for hundreds and thousands of years. And for hundreds and thousands of years, they will continue to resonate. And the reason is we have this blueprint on our soul that we were designed for something more, for a perfect relationship. We have a blueprint for a fairy tale happily ever after ending. Now, we're about to get to the point where I answer the question I said to hold on to earlier. Why do we have the post-Christmas depression, the holiday blues? And the answer is because of the Zainzucht. You see, we have this longing to be reunited with our perfect father, a father who is so loving, he's infinite love, he's endless wisdom, he's breathtaking beauty, these transcendent, amazing truths. And what does our culture offer us at Christmas time? A company Christmas party? Maybe a year end bonus? Way too much sugar and cookies and cake? Way too much rich food? Sometimes too much alcohol? And on Christmas morning, too many presents that we don't really want or need. See, the Christmas season, all the magical images of, of Santa and, and nativity scenes and, and, and snowy landscapes with, with sleighs, all these magical image, images awaken and stir again that blueprint that Carl Jung talked about, that remembrance, that vague remembrance that God put in our heart that we were built for something more. And our culture gives us the junk that I just mentioned. And that is why, for 2,000 years, Christians have been particularly intent on preaching the gospel around the time of Christmas. Because this is a time when all these magical themes seem to reawaken the stirring in our heart for that something more. And the only thing that will satisfy, and that's why I said at the beginning, the thing that will satisfy is not light therapy or aromatherapy, but the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, I, and I've mentioned the gospel before. It, it's really quite simple. In fact, it's, sometimes it's so simple that people don't want to believe it. It's simply that we rebelled against God. That despite that rebellion, God loved us so much 
that he came to pay the infinite debt that we owed. He died on a cross, taking our punishment upon himself in the form of Jesus, then resurrecting from the dead, defeating death, and Jesus now sits at the right hand of God. He lived a perfect life that we couldn't live and paid the debt that we couldn't pay. Now, here's, here's one of the problems with the gospel. Paul used to say, I'm going to go preach the gospel even to the churches that he already planted. He says this over and over again. He says, I long to come to you, church, to preach the gospel to you. These are people who already knew the gospel. There's something that happens. We need to hear it over and over. You know, I'm intent upon preaching it at this Christmas time because of the blues, but it's something we need to hear all throughout the year. And the reason for that is simple. Just like at Christmas, the, the, the culture is pushing these things that won't satisfy. All throughout the year, the, the culture is pushing things that won't satisfy. So throughout the year, it says, achieve in your job. Get that new house. Get that new car. Get that six-pack of abs. Look better. Then you'll be happy. Get more money. Then you'll be happy. Over and over, it sets up these things. And, and even as Christians, we tend to fall for it, don't we? And so we need to hear the gospel over and over. And, and, and make, make, I want to be very clear. There's nothing wrong with achieving in your job. In other words, honestly, if you are working as unto the Lord, as though God is your boss, you will achieve in your job. There's nothing wrong with making a lot of money. Those are good things. There's nothing wrong with physical intimacy and, and the joy of sex within the context of marriage. There's nothing wrong with good food. There's nothing wrong with a nice home. They just make lousy gods. They don't satisfy. You're built for something more. And that's what the gospel tells us. And so in my desire to, to, to say the gospel in a way that was fresh and new, I came across a video that, that I love. And it, it's an amazing young man named Jason Petty. His, his stage name, his rapper's name is Propaganda. And Jason Petty grew up in South Central L.A. He's an African-American young man, this crime, gang-infested area. That it's a truly miraculous uh, journey to Jesus. He, he, he tells about it in a, in a video on I Am Second. But Jason Petty, after he became a Christian in this miraculous faith journey, he thought, well, how am I going to live my life? What am I going to do? How am I going to proclaim the gospel? And he started in hip-hop. And he realized, you know, that, that, that isn't really what... what does it for me. That, that doesn't really resonate with my soul. And so he got into this urban art form called the spoken word. And, and nearest I can say is it's, it's basically sort of oral poetry. And, and so Jason Petty, also known as Propaganda, goes around the country and, and, he, and he goes to churches and, and religious conferences and other places and proclaims the gospel with the spoken word. And, and, and I hope that you will listen to this with fresh ears and let the gospel fall on you afresh as we watch this video of Jason Petty. It's the full story of life crushed into four minutes. The entirety of humanity in the palm of your hand crushed into one sentence. Listen, it's intense, right? God, our sins, paying everyone life. The greatest story ever told that's hardly ever told, God. Yes, God. 
the maker and giver of life. And by life, I mean any and all manner and substance, seen and unseen, what can and can't be touched, thoughts, image, emotions, love, atoms, and oceans, God. All of it is handiwork, one of which is masterpiece, made so uniquely that angels look curiously. The one thing in creation that was made with his imagery, the concept, so cold, it's the reason I stay bold, how God breathed in a man and he became a living soul. Formed with the intent of being infinitely, intimately fond, creator and creation held an eternal bond. And it was placed in perfect paradise till something went wrong. A species got deceived and started lusting for his job. An odd list of complaints as if the system ain't working and used that same breath he graciously gave us to curse him. And that sin seed spread through our soul's genome. And by nature of your nature, your species, you participated in the mutiny, our, yes, our sins. It's nature inherited, black in the human heart. It was over before it started. Deceived from day one and led away by our own lust. There's not a religion in the world that doesn't agree that something's wrong with us. The question is, what is it and how do we fix it? Are we eternally separated from a God that may or may not have existed? But that's another subject. Let's keep grinding. Besides trying to prove God is like defending a lion, homie. It'll need your help. Just unlock the cage. Let's move on on how our debt can be paid. Short and sweet. The problem is sin. Yes, sin. It's a cancer. An asthma choking out our life force, forcing separation from a perfect and holy God. And the only way to get back is to get back to perfection. But silly us trying to pass the course of life without referring to a syllabus. This is us. Keep up your good deeds. Chant, pray, meditate. But all of that, of course, is spraying cologne on a corpse. Or you could choose to ignore it as if something don't stink. It's like stepping in dog poop and refusing to wipe your shoe. But all of that ends with how good is good enough. Take your silly list of good deeds and line them up against perfection. Good luck. That's life past your pay grade. The cost of your soul, you ain't got a big enough piggy bank. But you could give it a shot. But I suggest you throw away the list. Because even your good acts are an extension of your selfishness. But here's where it gets interesting. I hope you're closely listening. Please don't get it twisted. It's what makes our faith unique. Here's what God says as part A of the gospel. You can't fix yourself. Quit trying. It's impossible. Sin brings death. Give God his breath back. You owe him. Eternally separated. And the only way to fix it is someone die in your place. And that someone got to be perfect. Or the payment ain't permanent. So if and when you find a perfect person, get him or her to willingly trade their perfection for your sin and death in. Clearly, since the only one that can meet God's criteria is God, God sent himself as Jesus to pay the cost for us. His righteousness his death functions as payment. Yes, payment. Wrote a check with his life, but at the resurrection, we all cheered because that means the check cleared. Pierced feet, pierced hands, blood-stained son of man, fullness, forgiveness, free passage into the promised land. That same breath that God breathed into us, God gave up to redeem us. And anyone and everyone, and by everyone, I mean everyone, 
who puts their faith and trust in him and him alone can stand in full confidence of God's forgiveness. And here's what the promise is, that you are guaranteed full access to return to perfect unity by simply believing in Christ and Christ alone. You are receiving life. Yes, life. This is the gospel. God, our sins, paying everyone life. Yes, that is worth clapping for. That is the good news. Excuse me. There's one other aspect of the gospel I, I want to talk about this morning. And that is how if you have trusted Christ, if you've put your faith in Jesus and become a son or a daughter of God, how does he now view us? And this becomes critical to having any sense of joy and satisfaction in this life. And let me explain why. Another psychologist in the 1900s, Charles Cooley, began to study self-esteem and and self-image. And he found a remarkable thing. People don't view themselves by looking at an objective viewpoint uh, and going down an objective list and comparing themselves to it. So, so you don't think whether you think you're attractive or not. You didn't get to that opinion, that conclusion, because you looked at all the characteristics of what an attractive person is, compared yourself to it, and made an objective determination. He says, the looking glass principle simply says this, Our self-image is determined by the messages we receive from the culture and the ones that we receive and take in determine our self-image. So if you're a woman and you go out and every guy is falling all over himself to get your number and to tell you how beautiful you are and wants to date you, you're going to believe you're beautiful. It doesn't matter what the objective reality might be. If you're, if you're a guy at work and, and the company is adopting every idea you have and promoting you and giving you pay raises and everybody's telling you how brilliant you are, then you think that you're intelligent and then you, that you have worth. Well, that's all well and good, except in this age of mass media, those aren't the messages we're receiving, are they? As far as attractiveness, we're getting compared to a tiny, tiny number of supermodels and men's fitness models and people who we can't possibly compare to. And on top of that, they're photoshopping and doing you know, computer-generated things to their bodies, and it's impossible. And so the message we're receiving over and over from our culture is we're not attractive. And the culture says the really intelligent people are the Bill Gates and the, um, and the Stephen Jobs. And so it goes on and on that the messages from our culture are leading us all to be depressed and down because we're listening to the wrong messages. And so it's time to listen to the messages of God. And this is one of the many reasons why you need to be in the scripture, why you need to know your Bible, why you need to immerse yourself with a communication from the loving Father. And one of the first messages we have is Genesis 127. And this is right back at the beginning. And God, and the scripture says this, God created mankind in his own image. In his own image, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Folks, if we are created in the image of the perfect, all-powerful, all-wise, all-loving creator, How can we not feel good about ourselves? 
King David goes on and gives us a little bit more information. It's in Psalm 139, verse 13 and 14. And if, you, if you're not familiar with this psalm, please make a mental note to, to read Psalm 139 regularly. Because in that psalm, King David says this. He says, you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. All your works is wonderful, are wonderful. I know that full well. When you begin to drink that in, how could you not begin to think something different? Let, let, me, let me stop and say something, folks. God created you and you and you, not your parents. Every single person is here because God made the affirmative decision to create you. There's not an accident in this room. There's not a mistake in this room. You have to understand that. Let that sink in. Let that soak in. Get rid of this looking glass principle. Don't listen to the messages of this culture. Now, there is one other aspect of the gospel that makes it hard to understand and and to really soak in what I just said. And that is the truth that when sin entered the world... A brokenness entered the world. And and this is talked about extensively in the book of Romans. And what it said is, not only did sin separate us from God, but somehow it caused a catastrophic problem in the very creation. Romans tells us that 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 the creation itself was subject to frustration, that this sin is such a powerful entity, it's, it's almost like a computer virus that got into things. It's, it's messing everything up. And at the human level, because of sin, we now have genetic issues like, like Down syndrome. We have cells that begin to deteriorate over age. So as we get older, we tend to get cancer and diabetes and other problems because of this problem of sin that has infected human beings. We can't keep our eye on that. We have to keep our eye on the final part of the gospel. And this is found in in, uh, Revelation chapter 21. I think we have those verses. Revelation 21, 1 1 through 4. There is coming a time, folks. This longing we have in our heart, there is coming a time when it will finally be satisfied in a beautiful and perfect way. And the scripture says it this way. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city with new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, now the dwelling of God is with men, and he will live with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old, older thi- the old order of things have passed away. What, what a day that will be. But, but until that day, I, I've been struggling to, to communicate images where we, where we somehow understand our brokenness, but have the image of what it might look like when that brokenness is no longer here. And I found a video that I found profoundly moving. It's, it's a video that involves a young man named Jason McElwain. And, and, and Jason has autism. He, he's got a genetic problem, and he never, ever felt normal. But then 
There was one shining moment in his life where for just a few minutes, he felt the, the, the fairy tale ending, the understanding that we're designed for something better. The, the Zenzukt in his heart was satisfied, the longing. And I want you to watch this video because I think this video gives us a sense of what it will finally be like when we're reunited with our father. I want you to think of yourself as Jason, broken now, but in this moment, get a glimpse of what it will be like when we're finally united with our father in heaven. Grace Athena High School in Rochester, New York, has a new, most unlikely hero, a special ed student by the name of Jason McElwain. Let's keep it going. Jason is the basketball team manager. For the past couple years, he's been assisting Coach Jim Johnson, helping with whatever the team needs. Get him motivated and uh, hand out water and just be enthusiastic. Enthusiastic, to say the least. Despite being born with autism, Jason's father says his son has never had a problem expressing himself at basketball games. You know, I was always concerned that he might get a technical and they lose a game because he, you know, start yelling or whatever. Let's have a hard practice tomorrow, all hour and a half, and let's get ready for Arcadia. Okay. Let's go. One, two, three, two. Because he has been so devoted to the team, for the last game of the season, Coach Johnson decided to let Jason actually suit up. Not to play necessarily, just to let him feel what it's like to wear a jersey. At least that was the plan. But with four minutes to go in last week's game, Coach Johnson stood up and pointed to number 52, Jason McElwain. After years of fetching water and toweling off other people's sweat, Jason was actually in a game. His first shot was a 20-footer from the right baseline. Was it close? Did you almost make I missed. it? I just airballed it. <laughs> I'm like, just, dear God, please, let's just get him a basket. His second shot missed, too, but the third was a charm. A three-point no-doubter. And Jason wasn't done yet. Not by a long shot. If I wasn't there to witness it, I wouldn't have believed it, you know. You caught fire. I just caught fire. I was hot as a pistol. Jason ended up shooting six three-pointers. One right after the other. He had 20 points total. And each time a shot went in, his teammates and the crowd went a little crazier. His last basket, right at the buzzer, created total mayhem. Because he is autistic, Jason says he's used to feeling different, but never this different, never this wonderful. Steve Hartman, CBS News, Rochester, New York. There is a longing in our heart for something good and wonderful. But there will be a day, there will be a day when it's satisfied, and that day will be sweet. And that, folks, is the gospel. 